Welcome to After the Deluge. I'm Justin Cox. We're in 2005, people. The nation is at war. Shit is bad. But we're about to get two Bright Eyes records on the same day. Digital Ash peaked at number 15 on the Billboard charts in the U.S. And in the popular consciousness, I'd say Digital Ash is like the B-side to I'm Wide Awake It's Morning. On a podcast like this, that goes out the window. I've been actually blown away by how deeply listeners to this podcast love Digital Ash and Digital Learn, which says nothing about that record. I love that record too, but um, there's there's an outsized popularity to I'm Wide Awake It's Morning, and I think once you get into something really niche like this, that all goes way out the window. But I do think it is part of the personality of this record. You know, this was the experimental electronic one that came out with what is basically the biggest Bright Eyes record by kind of a mile. Pitchfork gave Digital Ash a 7.2, which isn't bad, but it takes a clear back seat to I'm Wide Awake in Chris Dolan's write-up. Here he goes. Oberst and producer Mike Mogus had talked about making a more rhythmic and electronic album since even before Lifted, and Digital Ash in a Digital Urn finally realizes that project, setting Oberst in front of a rock band, beats, and strings. But where Bjork would have tackled this by flitting around the world to find the hottest club DJs and the coldest Inuit choirs, Oberst put the record together with a small crew of his buddies. Uh, I don't know about the the cold Inuit choirs and stuff like that. Fun writing, but, you know, I, I do think he's getting at something there that, like, just like those previous records we're talking about, he, he's choosing to do something very specific on this record, but it's still just like, hey, Mike Mogus, hey, friends, let's make this record. It's a collective family affair once again, and I think that's a, a big part of all these early Bright Eyes records. I guess we're not early anymore, but... It's very much part of this one, too. On that note, actually, because I just referred to Bright Eyes and Connor Oberst kind of synonymously as one thing, this is kind of the moment that that really, really ceases to be the case. Officially, the members become Mike Mogus, Connor Oberst, and Nate Walcott. All right, let's round out this review. Digital Ash has the claustrophobic feel of a singer locked up with a computer. Not every Bright Eyes record has to be an emotional epic, but Digital Ash feels like a practice run. Consider it version 1.0. So there you go. It's fascinating to me that publications combined these two records for their reviews. Rolling Stone did the same thing. And on one hand, that's cool because you can kind of like tie both records to the specific moment in 2005 and Bright Eyes and all that. But on the other hand, it's kind of weird to me. It's like, it's not like this is disc one and disc two of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. These are like by design two separate records. And yet they're kind of they're just reviewed together as a as a collective whole in basically the two kind of major publications at that time for this kind of music. So here's how this episode is going to play out. First, we get an interview with Todd Fink of The Faint. The Faint was the backing band and opening act for Bright Eyes on the Digital Ash and Digital Learn tour in 2005, and. More notably, they were a huge part of what Saddle Creek did and pretty revolutionary in pushing what quote-unquote indie music could be at that time. Um, That conversation touches on everything from electronic experimentation in music, getting out of your comfort zone, and what those two bands were doing in the early 2000s up through that Digital Ash tour. Uh, We also get into some fun early Saddle Creek stuff, including that fake interview on Fevers and Mirrors, which was a really fun conversation to have. 
the guy who plays Connor Oberst in that interview is Todd Fink, in case you missed the Fevers and Mirrors episode of this very show. What Todd and I don't do is go song by song through Digital Ash. So after Todd, you're going to hear from some of the Patreon supporters of this show. We had a very nice Sunday afternoon Zoom call and talked about this record and a lot of cool moments and songs and everything from it. It was really fun. I edited that down into a podcast segment. So that's what you're going to hear after this. And I will definitely do that again with the Patreon supporters in the coming month or so. Uh, so go to patreon.com slash after the deluge if you want to get in on that and more. Here is my conversation with Todd Fink of The Faint. I think I listened to it and, you know, when we were getting ready to do the tour together and then, uh, then I heard, a, you know, half of those songs a lot, you know, every night. So the other ones seemed kind of new to me. Did the like going back to listen to this record right now, do the thing where it like places you in 2005 in some way, like, like, like little Pavlov dog, like bell ring. That's like an association or anything on the familiar songs. Yeah. 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 But I don't know. It all kind of seems timeless to me. I'm not, I'm not, um, usually when I re-experience older things, I think that doesn't seem that long ago. That time just doesn't really seem to have passed. That strikes me as a nice way to be. Does that feel like a nice way to be from where you sit? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's actually something to aspire to really. Um, are you speaking of where you sit? Are you in Joshua tree right now? Yep. Mojave desert, Joshua tree. Uh, National Park is is right outside the window there on the mountain. It's very cool. I moved. Um, I was born for the first 14 years of my life, lived in Palmdale, kind of out in that direction. Oh, yeah. Just like really deeply know that world. It was interesting to move to Northern California and basically live in all these different places and realize like I, I kind of had to like re-understand how special that place is because it was just the surroundings of the place I lived in, you know, and it's really cool mm-hmm. place. Yeah, I've got kind of the opposite experience, you know, coming from Omaha. I used to, I guess I'd come out to California as a skateboarder for things. And then I toured around a lot playing music and with skateboard. But my default is not the prettiest place in the world. It's where my family's, you know, from and where my friends are. So it, it has, so I'm just every day here in the, in the desert, just in awe of how beautiful it is how lucky I am to be out here. That's, that's so cool. Have you, have you heard of a, this is a long shot, but have you heard of a, a magazine called the desert Oracle or a guy named Ken Lane? Yeah. He was an online writer and I, I've, I've like dying. I want to have my hands on one of those, the magazines he makes. Like I'm, I'm like something super alluring about this thing he's making and this. I love it. Yeah. He's got, I think there's a collection of them now as a book. Maybe there's been a couple volumes, but. Yeah, I think he's done done them like quarterly or so for the last couple of years. And he's got a radio show podcast too that's kind of like you turn it on. It's kind of like the like, uh, it sounds like he's in a bunker ready to talk about UFOs and stuff kind of deal. It's kind of exactly what you'd want him to be making. It's very cool. Yeah, um, he's a trip. Nice. Okay. So I want to, you can tell me if this feels forced, but I was I was thinking about something like, 
I've kind of explored this early period of Saddle Creek and Bright Eyes and Connor Oberst and all of this. And there's this point, and I had this in my conversation with Tim Kasher, like that I, I find it like extremely inspiring, the sort of communal sense of like what was happening in that scene of music, all the people playing on each other's records and everything. And the, the weirdly um, eclectic mix of different sounds that were coming out of it. And Tim kind of noted like, the faint and what you guys did was kind of the, like the starkest version of that, the starkest version of like, okay, they're making this kind of folky music. They're doing this kind of like experimental rock music. Let's, let's do this. And you have, you have a quote in the, like um, the earlier Saddle Creek documentary where you say like something like now we were electronic musicians, almost not really haha, but we were looking at the band differently. Like we were not just like, kind of incorporating some keyboards we were like let's go do this which i think is amazing and you could hear that you could hear that happen you know and I, it's not a distinction i can totally pin in my mind as someone who doesn't play electronic music but it's a very different kind of music that they that Bright Eyes makes on this record. And I kind of want to talk about all this stuff together, but it feels a little like a, a parallel to me. Like, a, I mean, Lifted and, and the stories in the soil is like the most kind of human sounding bunch of people in a room record imaginable. And this next record is essentially an electronic record. I heard you fell into a rabbit hole. Cover yourself up in snow Baby, tell me where to go I, I just said too much stuff to you, but <laughs> I don't know. How, how did that feeling for you as the faint, like that kind of like pivot point of let's make this kind of music feel? Did you know how to play those instruments? Did you know what to do? Um, I think I've always been of the opinion that it's best not to know how to play whatever instrument you're writing on love that um, but that's comes from somebody who's you know in one way making an excuse to not bother getting proficient <laughs> but I've tried and uh, I didn't like the results any better the results of being like really knowing what I'm doing and so yeah I think I think there's magic in you know being lost and just poking it uh, instruments, whether they're electronic or acoustic, you know, that's why you change tunings on a guitar. It, it gives you a whole new palette. And it's like that with electronic or electronic instruments as well. And so that process, I, I mean, that actually, what you just described is something that's been kind of recurring with all these bands. I feel like in that, in that early period, it, it feels like, okay, we're going to make this big, like what the, uh, I'm, I'm fresh off this lifted record and it's like we're going to make this thing with all these kind of different drummers playing like a drum core and all this different stuff and it feels like there are professional musicians you could hire to do that but the reason it's good is because it kind of like feels like it's kind of barely hanging hanging together you can feel friendship or something or you can like i don't know mm -hmm. what it is yeah there's a real spirit that mike i mean mike is really mike mogus is really behind the masterful production of the bright eyes records aside from being a great guitarist and musician composer. Um, and he had a lot to do with the faint records also. So it just kind of made sense. You know, he knew, he knows electronic 
music and what he doesn't know he's finding out very quickly you know but through the process of working with the uh the faint or you know he's produced a lot of th- things aside from those yeah two bands obviously um but so it made sense that they were doing an electronic record i mean i think it was kind of a cool idea to split the songs into two records that they record i think they recorded those at this about the same time yeah they must have yeah i, I don't think any of us were part of playing on that record i think your was brother it? played drums on a couple songs he did okay yeah i guess he's always he's always getting called in for drums and stuff is that so like i'm interested in that about mike mogus i mean you can tell to a certain degree but like is he just sort of like a all right clearly gifted in 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 production and arrangement and all that but is it sort of like a what i don't know i will figure out and the way i figure it out will might be different than the way you normally do it and it seems like it's just sort of like a a lot of people that get good at producing end up getting too clean at it or yeah. end up manicuring it too much. And it takes kind of a, a technician that is still an artist to, to straddle that role in the way that Mike does. Don't talk, don't talk. comfortable with mistakes unless they bother him you know that's (laughs) something that i learned from working with him it's like leave it in in until you have to go back and say i just can't i can't leave that mistake (laughs) that's just not close to what it was supposed to be and i it bothers me every time then okay maybe touch it up but it's easy to get carried away um with perfectionism and he's not He's not guilty of that, even though he's immaculate at recording and mixing. Very cool. It's like, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't project that immaculate personality nature trait onto artists making what they're making necessarily. Right. He knows to value the 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 weirdness and the strange choices instead of trying to clean them up. Amazing. I can, you can hear like like as you listen to it, you can. Oh shit! I lost my thought. Sorry. Just, I, my, my thought I, I should something I didn't say at the beginning of this is that I'm on like I'm on the final final upswing out of COVID right now so it's my uh, congrats yeah which kind you. did you get BA <laughs> I, I got the kind that had me just take three days of naps which kind of felt like maybe I something I just needed to do in my life anyway you know yeah oh yeah this actually isn't that good of a thought but uh, there's a there's a there's an interesting distinction like in like imperfection is beautiful and there's a lot of imperfection like in in different kind of ways both like production to moments on records and everything like that but it's funny to like think about the distinction between an imperfection that is charm and an imperfection that is like a thing that needs to be fixed which is like there's maybe not any answer necessarily it's what you want but from that role he plays on these records it's kind of an important one to be thinking about as you talk about it yeah so all right, um, we'll we'll get to uh, a little closer into digital ash and digital learn in a minute, but 
like I was I was listening to a lot of the like faint from 2001 2004 and stuff and then listening to this record and it's I want to speak very honestly about the fact that I'm a little ignorant to like different subgenres of electronic music and especially in that moment I was the type of person that like was like I'm wide awake it's morning let's go here's some folk songs I'm playing an acoustic guitar this is for me the other stuff was stuff for me to like learn about and and learn to love and everything but I like the dis- the best distinction I can get in my head without trying to put genres is that it was like, okay, the faint is playing this electronic music, this kind of like indie electronic music with it sounds different than other things. And then that's, I'd say that's also true about digital ash and a digital learn, but like there's a part in that documentary where you talk about like playing those, that bringing that stuff into your music in a basement. And then like Connor and Tim Cash are coming down and being like, <laughs> is this, is this like what the whole album is? Like, what's kind of like, what's going on here. (laughs) But then kind of like pretty quickly from that scene, you're talking about like playing it in rooms and people reacting to it and kind of like, kind of like feeling a return energy of like, there's a thing to be doing here. And, and it made me, I listened to these faint records that way. That's like, these sound like rooms full of like people bouncing around and everything like that. And that is not what, digital ash and a digital learn feels like to me it's not what electronic music was like at the time either you know electronic music was a sterile art form that we loved i mean that's not a diss yeah you know we loved apex twin and i don't know square pusher and whoever else at the time but it wasn't i mean i guess square pusher eventually did do some atmospheric kind of it was jazz though, so that doesn't really count. Y- yeah, that I thought it was. I thought Digital Ash when I revisited it. I mean, to me, it doesn't. I don't. I barely even noticed. It is very electronic compared to I'm Wide Awake, but like now, it just sounds like music. You can make a plan, carve it into stone. Like a feather falling It is still unknown Until the clock speaks up Says it's time to go You can choose the high Or the lower road It's true It just sounds current It doesn't sound um, It's true folky or electronic it just is what it is yeah you hear it you hear it in 2005 and i think it does it's like you have the faint and you have like the postal service record and that that same thing that just sounds normal and current now too probably i mean when we were first deciding we wanted to do a lot of electronic stuff it had to do with uh, i mean the cultural baggage at the time was 80s cover bands or, you know, bands, or maybe not even cover bands, maybe just 80s bands, like of older people with their tall keyboard stands and multi-tiered things. And they're, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what they're wearing, maybe shoulder pads and stuff, doing a bunch of 80s stuff, like late 80s sounding just not, it was using keyboards, but it was like absolutely the opposite of what we were trying to do with it. We just thought, bring the bring these old keyboards into, um, you know, the punk space or something, or yeah. like the, the more of an underground thing. And once we started doing it, we realized from people's 
recommendations. Oh, do you know this record and this record? And it's like, wow, no, we didn't, we didn't know those, but these are really along the lines of what, what we're going after here. And that was kind of cool to hear also kind of like, oh, I guess we're not really doing anything yeah, perfectly but... new, but you know, you try to make sure that you put enough of your who, uh, who-ness of the band into uh, the sound. So it's never exactly something that's already happened. Could could you say that there's some some good, it's probably good for the faint that you started making that music before hearing that stuff? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I could see that. I'm not sure though i mean it's better for our yeah i think feeling special while you're making art is important whether it's a delusion or not yeah so yeah it would be helpful it's pretty hard to invent something completely new at at, that at this point or any point but and then at the same time everything anyone's creating is new so i don't i don't i don't Everything's a combination of other things. That's just how yeah. creativity works. Was it more of an attraction and a physical lust? The loins by imagination, that first inconceivable touch that I was planning. I'm mean wishing. How embarrassed I'd been if you knew what I was thinking. Did that process of people telling you about you telling you about those artists as you guys were kind of running down that road get you create diving deep into that kind of music? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just kind of nice to have more references of uh, you know kind of help us steer or, or maybe as a validation. You know, like uh, what I'm thinking of is uh, there was a record by the Human League that you know everyone knows the Human League and we knew the Human League, but but we didn't know this early tape until uh, we did Blank Wave Arcade in 1999. And uh, I think we found it partway through making that. Uh, this tra- uh, The album's called Travelogue and just had such a cool underground vibe compared to what we thought of, you know, Don't You Want Me by uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is also a great song. But. So cool. So let's go to let's go to this moment that these um 2001 is Dance Macabre, ta- 2004 is Wet from Birth, 2005 is Digital Ash and Digital Urn. So so if I'm right, The Faint plays on that tour with Bright Eyes and also is part of the backing band for Bright Eyes for Digital Ash, is that right? Yeah. Uh for the US tour at least. I can't remember if we did a Europe tour together or not, but yeah, the US tour we both played and then three of us, not me, played in uh, the Bright Eyes Band. Cool. Do you, do you remember how that like came to be? Like, how does that? Because it's not like it's not like the three guys from the Faint were necessarily the band on that record. That record is a lot of like Mogus production and a bunch of different people. Like, I think it take a lot of it took a lot of people to to make that record to perform it live. So there yeah. were two drummers. Clark was one of them. I guess Jacob played keyboards and Joel played bass, but then there was also, you know, boards. And then there was Anton and Greta on um, strings and Andy Lamaster, I think was on guitar. So there's, there's just a lot. There's a lot. Of- <laughs> yeah. 
I, I was able, we were talking about like early, early aughts internet writing and stuff. And I was able to find some of the fun, like kind of charming, I mean, really just like fun to read, like people's blog spot and live journal things about like this show they just went to. And I think that pe- people loved that tour. I mean, I think they got a different thing out of Bright Eyes and it sounds like they also got a different kind of opening act like that. It sounds like the the energy, the faint would bring to a show like that. It sounds like it was... What, what what what's your memories of how that tour felt? What how was that tour? Feels like a lame question now, honestly, as it comes out of my mouth. But no, it's not the question's fault. It's the rememberer's fault. I just don't re- I don't do much remembering. And when you're out of practice at something, you don't have it when you need it. I remember being happy for Bright Eyes that they have more of a visual show. They had the screens behind them. I just got myself to blame. We had been trying for many years already by that point to escape being an indie artist, but uh, you can't escape um, people's perception of you uh if if you're cut from made from that i've i've probably been guilty of that on this call already um when you when the faint would make us would would write songs or record songs like it's this kind of pulsating hard like there's like a is it is it being played to a click like is it how do you put it together is it is the the drummer just the drums are affected and now we, we got our keyboards like How's it coming together? In The Faint, Clark is the production mastermind, my brother, um, the drummer. And his, I mean, when we first started the band, he was on, you know, we just gave him a couple drums to start with. He didn't have any drummers to look up to. It was just, you know, learn a beat. Okay, you got a ride and a kick and a snare. That's good for now. And we just left it at that. And I think that he didn't really search out any drummers to like. So he ended up being a, um, a metronome, basically. He was, he was from the very beginning um, comfortable with playing to a click, playing like a drum machine. He just, you know, drum machines were his, the drummer that he looked up to because he could program those and so we'll probably start with drums and bass just kind of a lot of times we're we're all trying you know we'll we'll jam a little with some beat maybe clark's playing maybe it's a drum machine and he's and clark's playing other keyboards or or guitars or bass or whatever we just sort of see who can come up with something and then say hey that and build off of that and then once we kind of get some a section of a song i'll start doing melodies some words come to it. Sometimes they're just, you know, syllables and that kind of stuff. And I'll uh, fill that, fill the words in later when I know what I'm trying to write about. And then it all gets kind of assembled in, in the computer. Usually. I mean, we've done different records where there, where it was like uh, really just everybody playing in the room until you have a song, the old school way. But most of the time we're compiling ideas Recovering slowly, the doors open from the feet of truck by a road 
And then later we learn how to play the songs. I mean, we don't know, like it, it may or may not be the same people who played the stuff that made the stuff up that played it on the record or that play it live. It's just, we figure out those things at each different step stage. It, does that ever pose a challenge where you're like, Oh shit, that's, that's impossible with this many of us. How are we going to interpolate this or interpret it? Yeah. And that's, and that's how we ended up getting, uh, pushing what MIDI could do really early on, you know, before anybody <laughs> was, it was admitting they would use MIDI. We were sending, you know, there's a few things that are just not possible to play, like you said, and we'd have to figure out how to make that happen before a lot of times the technology was really widespread. has so many songs now i used to i used to keep pretty good track of it but i think i started losing it about uh about the time that we did this tour honestly i think i had everything that connor had done i mean when i went about the process of saying yeah i'm gonna go album by album and make a and and do a, a podcast series about it i did did something similar with jackson brown songwriter i love and oh yeah and uh jackson brown just has 16 albums you know everything's on these albums and it was like jesus christ there's there's two small eps and splits between every bright ice record at the beginning it's like there's so much there yeah i mean even when i met connor he already had at least an album and a seven inch or two seven inches out and he was just a child if you are into getting a bright eyes zine some extra content or if you just want to support the creation of this show, go to patreon.com slash after the deluge. It's just one $5 tier, super simple, easy. Thank you for the support. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I asked Tim about that just because I find it so cute, like so interesting. But yeah, what what was that like? Being like, okay, there's this this child here, and he's writing these songs. And wait, these most, let alone like a fourteen year old, most like seventeen year old songs played on their acoustic guitar i don't know just amazing to what was it like kind of being around that not just connor oberst but all of you guys making this music i mean i recognized connor's talent really early i think i mean at least yeah i mean i think there's no way around it but my parents came out to see clark clark and i play in you know an early version of the faint called Norman Baylor, where Connor was in the band also. And they were just like, why, why do you let that kid in the band? <laughs> I mean, he, they liked him fine, but they were like, you know, wow, this is an interesting choice you've made here. Cause you know, he just kind of like squeals and does tantrums and uh, 
makes noise with these toys and stuff. And I was like, well, he's, he's a big talent. He's going to be huge. And they were like, no, he's not. <laughs> uh, but later, but later gave me uh, cred for uh, calling it. You had to, you had to see potential and have some vision and some time. Yeah. I mean, I understand why, why they would think that. Cause yeah, it wasn't obvious yeah. unless you, you know, really in tune with what was going on there. But I think kind of similar to what you're saying earlier, where, if you being perfect at something doesn't make you better at something like, okay, he's got this songwriting talent. He's got this talent there for sure. Probably the fact that he was squealing and banging on things while also having that talent is probably kind of why it works out the way, why the the stuff that gets made in the years that follow gets made that way. And is not just some, yeah, it's not bland. It's brave. It's ambitious and it's, and it's uh, daring, you know? Yeah, it's something like it's, it's daring to do to do conceptual stuff in the indie world, especially in those days, you know, like talking, you know, doing talking in intros or that fake interview saying uh, that. Well, that was that wasn't him. That was me. But Oh, I do. want. I'm going to talk to you about that. How that? Before, <laughs> you know, there. Oh, you, you knew that. Yeah. And I didn't know that until recently, but before we go there real quick like just to get just kind of echoing what you're saying like in that in the song let's not shit ourselves he talks about like we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier before we recorded Mm. but like the i do not read the reviews and like before he says i do not read the reviews he says like i've learned that ambition can lead only to failure i do not read the reviews and those are all like really ambitious they're all they're they're like you said they're brave you know it's not just a talented person who could write he could write really clever immaculate songs and i kind of think a little bit to a certain degree that's what i'm wide awake it's morning is i'm wide awake it's morning kind of feels like the closest version to just like you want to see some catchy clever folk songs here they are but i'm also going to put out this sort of experimental electronic-ish record on the same exact day which is like in its in and of itself an interesting thing to do you know but the let's go to the the um, fevers and mirrors thing because that that fake radio interview I assumed that was him but I I saw it as him kind of some kind of wink and a nod joking then I learned that it's that if you read the pitchfork review from the moment about that they interpret he interprets it as like the most self-centered like it's like an inc- I don't know how you can possibly read it as that unless maybe you want to read it that way quick note about this next little section i speak as if the reviewer sincerely believes the interview is totally real which isn't fair and i characterize it that way to todd the reviewer does use the word staged in the review so he knows it's not real real like a clip from npr or something like that he acknowledges that it's a skit but he critiques the contents of the interview as if they are real answers in an interview as a way to call him self-absorbed and etc etc whatever you can all link to the pitchfork interview Anyways, I just wanted to add that clarification because as much as I'd like to like call out bad faith readings in a a review if I find one, I don't want to do a bad faith reading myself. And the way I kind of just breezily hop into this part of the conversation, I do that to a certain degree. So just wanted to say that. A lot of things are really unclear for me right now. That's interesting. Uh, Now you mentioned your depression. No, I didn't. You're from Nebraska, right? Yeah. Hard for me to be so, you know, I'm so close to it. Like, of course, it's not real from my perspective. 
while not thinking it was some real interview because neither the interviewer or the quote unquote Connor Oberst in the thing, it seems like they're real. I did think that was him. I I like did think that was him doing that. And I'm, I'm no, I'm not alone in that. And it, but it's like, I, I have to tell you, like, it's basically probably my favorite or among my favorite kind of skit sketch type things on any record I've ever heard, because it's like, is that improv? Is that scripted in some way? Is it some combination of both of them? Like, I know you, you don't, you don't give your memory a lot of credit, but like, what, I can, what I is that? that? I remember doing that. Um, he gave us a script and he's told me that he chose me because I'm, because I could do aloof. <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, I, I do a lot of pausing in my word, in my phrasing and my thoughts are disjointed. That's just how my brain works. And I don't re- over rehearse things. Um, he, I think he just thought, well, I don't know who could do me. I'll just, Todd, you just try it. I love it. So so I didn't, I mean, I looked at the page. I didn't read the whole thing. And then we did it. It's probably one take. I don't know. Maybe there were two, but I don't remember doing more than one. And that was that. So he, he wrote it all down, basically. You know, I don't think it's exactly word for word. I probably... You know, since I wasn't really reading it, I was just kind of seeing what it was like and doing yeah. it. Yeah, it doesn't sound read. And then there's, there's, I mean, it's a creative piece of writing, but there's certain parts where like certain stuff you say seems like it catches the person who would presumably have the other side of the script in their hand off guard, like they laugh at it. So some of the references like babies in bathtubs are not biographical? Well, I did have a brother who died in a bathtub. Drowned. Actually, I have five brothers that died that way. <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> I I did think that is a brave move. Like, you know, everybody's trying to be a little brave and a little bit, you know, push themselves when they're making a record. But um, that one, I was like, wow, okay. I think it, I think it's a brave move because it's like you and how you're perceived as a person. And I wasn't listening to bright eyes when fevers and mirrors came out and, or, or where until it got it popped off at all, all the, all your bands popped off a little more in the years that followed that. But the, um, clearly the perception at that, like kind of ascendant moment for saddle Creek and him and everything was like, dark brooding emo boy and like all that skit is going to do is like reinforce some version of that and then if you have fun of that and he's he's making fun of that but also kind of like i'm not i say this as a thing that i think is actually fun but like for a period of for us for let's say a decade of my life your voice was connor ober's voice for me how long have you worked at this station well, just a few minutes. Uh, now, you mentioned empathy for others. Would you say that that is what motivates you to make the music that you make? No, not really. It's more a need for sympathy. I want people to feel sorry for me. I like to feel the burn of the audience's eyes on me when I'm whispering all my darkest secrets. 
into the microphone. You know that you don't you don't come back from you don't come back from the experience of hearing that interview and being like, well, I'm not going out. I'm not the type that's just like on YouTube looking for audio interviews and stuff, which is kind of fucking funny to say as someone recording a podcast. But that was the vo- that was the voice, you know. It's funny. Yeah, I've been in conversations with people before, and all of a sudden they say, "Wait a minute, it was you on that." You know, they'll recognize my voice. Which is funny, strange. I think you were well cast in that role because, like, as I talk to you now, like, and and I think it's funny for him to come to you and say, like, you're aloof and you have disjointed thoughts and you pause between your sentences. You can be you. <laughs> how I'll cast you as this, but you're not you're not putting a lot on to 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 play Connor Oberst in that thing, as you say it. No, he just must have seen. He must have just been like I. Uh, he, how Todd is can be me. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. I think if I don't do it on this time, I'm going to In Digital Ash and Digital Learn, it feels like songs Connor Oberst wrote. Like you could have decided, all right, this song is going to be a folkier song or whatever. Like they sound like songs written independent of that, like whatever sonic soundscape they eventually took on. The songs are, I mean, Connor writes the whole song before any production stuff starts, I think. And do you, do you, this isn't, this is like probably not, I'm asking you this because I'm talking to you and it's not like you have to have an answer to this, but do you, do you get the sense that like, he has an idea of like, okay, we're, what, what all those instruments are going to do on that? Or is that like a collaborate with Mike Mogus and the like? Nate. Uh, I mean, I think he'll have conceptual ideas about, you know, he wants to do this in a, with a banjo thing, his friend can play the, uh, is awesome at the flute and he just got turned on to that. And now he's going to kind of imagine that, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying, I don't think he's thinking of like the details. He's a, he's an overview. He's got the song. He trusts Mike and Nate to compose around that song. And then, I mean, I think he mostly lets them do what they do. I mean, he, they're amazing at it. And, you know, I'm sure he, in the process says, you know, eh, I'm sure there are times that he says that he nixes stuff, but yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, they're real collaborators as well, so but cool. the whole song is done, is done first. And I think Mike probably plays around with a couple different, you know, rhythms or um, uh, sonic palettes. And then they build off of that. Nice. But, but the sense, which really makes a lot of sense is that like, from the beginning when he's recording into that four track and and he's a teenager, he's writing full songs. And at this point he's writing full songs. You're just, now it's a collaborative process of building him into what they become after and stuff. Yeah. They're, they're a lot more built out and they sound a lot more built out. And then sometimes it's like, okay, let's do it back to the basics. Just, you know, the three instruments or just me doing this one or something. So cool. Can you tell me about uh so you're you're in Joshua Tree you can you tell me about any project any music projects you have going on whether it's the faint or otherwise and then I want to ask you about recapitate. Yeah, so I I've been um playing music out here more of like a spacious kind of kind of a slow uh cosmic western groove kind of thing. Yeah. Uh it's a, you know, it's synthesizers and um maybe like a really really slow disco or psych or something. Uh, but that doesn't have a name. I'm just playing with my uh, housemate here, not Arenda, but we have a, a roommate. And um, 
I've been starting to, I mean, I kind of take, took a break from writing faint stuff and I'm about to get back into it. I think, but sweet. Hasn't happened yet. Is that a, a kind of like natural ebb and flow in life as that kind of stuff happens? Yeah. I like to wait, wait until, you know, it grabs me by the, by the shirt collar. I used to look at it like I need to come up with a new album pretty soon, you know, that kind of thing. And it feels good to, uh, to not be in that mindset for a bit. So I've been enjoying that, but, but now it's starting to come back to me. I'm starting to just feel like playing music. By virtue of the band being what kind of, kind of band it is, can, can like, other members and your brother be doing their own version of that thing where they are to the to a point that you all bring stuff together at a time yeah we work we've been working on very slowly on um a song that way um over the covid break using jacob's lyrics who was our keyboard player who died right before covid happened yeah yeah and um it's been hard to finish that even though we're pretty far along on that one. And so I think that's part of what made me kind of just wait for it to come to me as far as doing new music, more stuff. We have a, we do have a show booked, I think. I think we have a festival booked. So we're, we're still a band, but uh, <laughs> we're all living in different states. So, you know, how that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What will, what will coming together to get ready for that festival be? Somebody's going to have to get all of our gear out of the storage container in um, Omaha and drive it to California. And then we'll practice in here. Everybody will fly out. We'll learn, learn our songs and probably jam on some new stuff and do the show. Actually, it'll probably be two trips, but that's not important. That's exciting. So you, you play kind of like you're, you're playing in Omaha, Nebraska, like these, all these Saddle Creek bands are doing their thing. And then you play in this band that kind of like takes this hard left and starts making this like dancey uh, electronic music, which is a thing you didn't know how to make at the time that you did it. All right, now fast forward some time in life and you're making like really high end custom hats. How does this enter your life? And tell, tell me a little bit about it. Well, they're beautiful. By the I was way. on tour. Thank you. We, we were on tour. I think we were, um, I don't remember when exactly, but uh, we were on some, some uh, rooftop pool. And uh, for some reason I was, I want to say I was dressed up, maybe, I don't know. but I jumped in the pool with all my clothes on and my hat. And I think I had a tuxedo on, but I, then jumped into the uh, hot tub afterwards to warm up. And ever since that moment, I had a better shaped hat because of the experience. And I realized at that point, okay, this is what changes the shape of a hat. And I built off that knowledge to, you know, customize my own hats and get them how I wanted them to be kind of lumpy, you know, uh, a little bit misshapen and um i think i've just been kind of learning how to do it teaching myself ever since then that was probably i don't know 12 or 14 years ago something like that and eventually i learned how to you know making them for other friends and collecting these old wooden hat blocks that you stretch the felt over yeah just learning how to do it in all the different sizes and eventually i went i decided to turn it into a business 
So in uh, four years ago, Recapitate Headwear website went up and that's, that's one of the things that I do. It's, I think of it as like a, another artistic format. I like it because I can, the project is small enough that I know that I'm going to finish each one. That's helpful for me. Like songs are a little bit tough sometimes, you know, yeah, it's great yeah. when they just all come out. A song you kind of have to decide is done, right? A, a, a physical object, physical piece of art you're making. I suppose you can keep going forever on that too, but can kind of feel a little more done. Yeah. Yeah. If I had two of me, I think I could, we could talk and decide uh, when something is done or what the next thing that happens is, but it's always more fun to start a new thing than to finish an old thing for me. Cause I'm not goal oriented. I'm just fun oriented. So it's tough to finish things. That a moment, like a, a beautiful impulsive moment, moment like that gifted you the, an epiphany for how to make a better fitting hat. And then you went and did, did a thing with that. Super cool. <laughs> yeah, um, and I'll make sure to, to link to that in the description and anything else as it relates to uh, digital ash and a digital urn early years with Saddle Creek, the faint, anything. One thing I thought of earlier um, when you were talking about how Tim was saying something about um, we were doing something different or the faint was doing something different at the time, the whole inspiration for doing something different came from Tim. It came from Slow Down Virginia, which is which was his uh, yep. band before Cursive. It, it was the moment that I decided or realized music can be any anything that you want it to be. You put your own character into it. It's not about what type, you know, I'm deciding to do country or reggae or whatever it is. It's style doesn't really matter. Just go all the way with what it is, you know, with your own personality and your own vision it can be anything and the more expressive the better so yeah. i think he really was the keystone of the whole the whole thing i i would think lullaby for the working class was another one that that was doing something really different but even on the way more folky side i think bright eyes sort of decided to do folky stuff kind of that's a real gift to be told a thing like that at that age because you really you're kind of defaulted to like see lines and categories and try and figure out where to slot into and to be told to be to see an example of like and i'm pretty sure there's a there's another quote from you that says something like you can go to all you start traveling around and seeing these cities and seeing that like versions of this kind of same kind of punk band or whatever not to discount any of those bands but like what if we did what if we did this instead you know and that's i think most bands don't make that decision and yeah, if you get out there and realize that everybody's already doing what you thought you were, the originality that you thought you had, maybe it's time to search your soul deeper. What I, what I find wild, though, is that, that you just named, I mean, you started to name Tim and, and, as, 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 and Slow Down Virginia as an example of that. Then you proceeded to name like three other bands from those early years of that record label. And I just find it really that somehow was like an ethos that see, that existed in that collection of people, you know, like that's, I'm, I've never been to Omaha. I don't know. You know, that just is cool and worthy of like cool and inspiring really. Yeah. It's rare. I mean, people talk about it like it's rare, but yeah, everybody wanted their friends to do well and nobody was trying to do the same thing. We were just all 
doing what we do and hoping for the best for everybody. And yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe that's one of the ingredients of a good scene. I mean, at the beginning, it's just by virtue of being small and close together, but like watching all your names appear on all of each other's stuff is like, and even, even to the, to the pitchfork reviewers credit for, for digital action and digital learn, like he says something like, uh, he, he could going over to make this kind of like more electronic sounding record, but it's still all those same people. It's like, it's not like send this out and get this, this DJ and this producer and this, 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 yeah. you know, it's yeah. like, it's okay. This is sonically this whole different thing, but it's still these people, you know, it's, it, that's cool. Yeah, totally. Which is that good example of what you said earlier. I mean, I I've, I've said versions of this and I love hearing it from you that like, the best version of anything is like someone in a talented, but untrained person making something. There are no rails, you know, there are no, there are no rules to abide by. And so that's how you end up with something different. There's a place for amazing musicians. Obviously they're all over the place in on the bright as stuff. Everybody yeah. who plays on that stuff is awesome at what they do. So I'm not just, <laughs> I'm just saying it's not essential for the um, song part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Thank you so much for taking the time. Where can people find Recapitate and anything else you or and you in general? Let's see. I'm on Instagram at Todd the Fink, and you can find most of my other connections from that. My website for the hats is recapitateheadwear.com. Sweet. Good talking to you. Thank you, Todd, for taking the time to have that conversation. Deeply appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. Um, now I'm going to kick over to conversation I had with uh, some friends from the Patreon. I'll say their names along the way and I'll list them in the description for this episode. And here is a voice memo from a Patreon subscriber named Reed who couldn't make the, the hang session on last Sunday, but had some great thoughts about the track Light Pollution. Johnny Hobson was a good man. He used to love me books and marks down. He even got me a subscription to the Socialist Review. Listening to records in his basement. Old folk songs about the government. It's love of money, not the market. He said it's fuckers. It's basically a disappearcido song done in a digital ash style. It's about the personal struggles of being trapped inside a capitalistic world which makes it hit even harder in 2022. But at the same time, this song is also very in line with other stuff on this record. Leaving the city and going home is a reoccurring theme on this record. Like, I need a break from the city again and hit the switch. The desire of breaking free and driving out of the city that is expressed in this song it ties in perfectly with the rest of the album. While I consider the end of Light Pollution as one of the greatest moments of all Bright Eye songs, it's not just cathartic, it feels almost heroic, which is very rare for Bright Eyes. This song makes me smile when hearing about the protagonist dying in a car crash. Bright Eye songs usually end immediately after the climax, but in Light Pollution, things come down a little bit when Connor sings at the end repeatedly and the keyboard comes back. 
It's almost like it's allowing you to examine the remains of the accident, which makes this song even better. So yeah, I really love this song, and I think it's a great song for coming home late at night after a long day. When did this album come into your life? Right when it came out, I actually I went for a three month trip to Cuba、uh, just a few days after it came out. So I like I bought this. I bought "I'm Wide Awake This Morning" and I just brought these two and like a few more albums to Cuba, and that was all the music I had、uh, in my portable CD player for like three months. So I have listened to this album probably listened to this like once per day for three months. I had a friend. I took a trip, and my friend gave me like an iPod Nano with like. Forty songs on it. He picked the songs, and I took this trip, and it was this two week long trip. I, a lot of people I didn't know and everything, and my relationship with probably twenty of those songs I didn't like, but the twenty songs I liked, I mean, I deeply, deeply loved. There were like these. There's like a handful of like Tori Amos and Regina Spektor songs, and these like when you hear that album now, since you had that like very distinct experience. Has enough time gone by that those are just songs that exist, or is there any like traces of that trip to Cuba in hearing them? Like, is there like a association you have or anything? Yeah, I think most of them are tied to very specific memories, and then I think a lot of this is just like not a complete song, but like a line from different songs. It's like, yes, that is like that moment、uh, that like、uh, so so. And of course, as you have like a three month trip, and you you travel around, and you meet new people, and you have this sort of narrative. So it's like, yeah. This is sort of the soundtrack, the soundtrack to all that. So, was it was was this like a disc man with headphones type situation that you were listening on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really like kind of a significant thing because it it creates this situation where you are listening to those CDs in order and often all the way through and stuff in a way that you have to very be very deliberate about now. But that's like the default way. If you put that CD in, that's the default way you're going to hear it. And it's also like you're not like, oh, two Bright Eyes records come out. I'm going to shuffle them together and listen to them.、Yeah. You're like, I'm either going to they're like they're two super distinct albums coming out on that same day, and you're either in digital ash mode or I'm wide awake mode. That's cool. Yeah, and also like leaving home in the morning, you bring one CD with you, and that is the music you have that day. That is your album、uh, that day. We're talking on a digital ash episode, but in that moment, did you connect to them equally in different ways, or did one jump out or anything? Oh, that's so difficult. I think, yeah, maybe I'm wide awake. It's it's morning. Hit a little harder is because yeah, it's like the style of bright eyes music I'm more used to, and I think the 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 one liners are a bit hits a bit harder. Yeah, yeah. This morning, I, uh, I, I this is a question that I have about digital ash and digital learn, and why I'm wide awake. It's morning, like lyrics jump out way more to me on I'm wide awake. It's morning. But but I think as I listen closely to to digital ash and to digital learn in the years since and in the last couple of days, the the lyrics are amazing on it. It's just that the lyrics aren't the things sitting at the forefront all the time. There's a bunch of other stuff happening. Whereas like, I'm wide awake. It's morning. It's loaded with 
songs that are just a light acoustic guitar and him basically singing poetry, you know? I remember, I think it might have been even in like Spin Magazine or something like that, where they described um, Wide Awake this morning as like the, the folky bright eyes we know and love, whereas Digital Ash is the trip hop, like devotion, like you might have heard a lover I don't have to love, right? And so yeah, yeah. when I heard that, and I like that song, but I listened to Digital Ash first in my car back when, you know, cars got CD playing and everything. And then I listened to the whole thing, loved it, hopped over to the folk one. I was like, okay, this one isn't just, it's just not pulling me in like the other one. So I repeated Digital Ash for months without even thinking about the other one because musically I left out. You know, he's a, he's a good lyricist, but musically, Digital Ash really popped for me at the time. Yeah. This is, I'm probably going to end up saying this multiple times on, on I'm Wide Awake and Digital, like in upcoming episodes of this. But here's, here's my logic. This is, I'm like projecting this onto Connor Oberst, but it's like, it's, it's, it's a, a, a genius songwriter and everything on like Fevers and Mirrors lifted all the stuff before it. It all kind of comes sideways and is either deliberately ugly in certain moments or like it's all contract. It's like never allowed to just be immaculate. And I'm wide awake. It's morning is immaculate. And, and so if you're going to put out something immaculate, why don't you also just put out some like slightly experimental electronic thing the same exact day? That's like, that seems to me like, okay, I'm going to show, I'm going to, I'm going to throw you this perfect fastball down the middle, but I'm also on the same day going to do this fucked up different thing. That's no, amazing. No, I, dis- I disagree. I think that musically, like he, he hyper produced it in, both of these albums way more than he ever did in the past. So I think both of them are, are on that stretch. Oh no, it's hyper, it's hyper produced and clean, but like you just said, it's different than everything. It's different than what came before it. You know, it's also immaculate in its own way, but it's, it's coming from a different direction. Sure. There's like songs that have, have like feature those kinds of sounds on them leading up to it, but he was, a guy writing songs on acoustic guitars by and large, you know, and that's not what digital Ash and digital learn is. I mean, none of it, we haven't said Mike Mogus's name, but it's probably really, that's, that's, <laughs> that's kind of what I think too. Digital Ash definitely just seems like Mike put, he just, he really got to express himself creatively on that. I mean, he does on everything, but it seems like, like what was said before, where, it's the complete opposite. It's like, let's do something completely different than Wide Wake. And then we got the Chalash, which is my favorite out of the two. ones like interpreting i'm wide awake songs in digital ash style and digital ash songs in i'm wide awake style it's kind of cool that they're doing that because these feel to me like the differences in what they do in production but they're songs written by connor oberst and then taken to the band and getting whatever whatever happens after is what happens you know to me at least i mean it's not completely foreign either no it's pretty admirable like neely o'hara and the I mean, there's ones on that four track like collection of songs, 95 to 97 that are, I mean, probably by by just necessity of like not using a drummer and just clicking a little like 
90s drum machine or whatever but they sound some of those songs have little like electronic-y sounding things happening on them you know what the digital ash does is it's really exploring the medium of electronic music you have like this distortions and filters and the song coming through a filter etc like what and it's sort of not in the lyrics, but like in the music, like aesthetically asks the question, what what happens when we start making music electronically? Which is funny because like that has been answered for 20 years. I think a lot of music, like from the 80s, sort of asks these questions, like what does it mean that a computer generates this sound? And I think it's funny that Connor, like 20 years later, starts sort of doing this. Because there's this switch that gets hit and it all stops making sense. And in the middle of drinks, maybe the fifth or the sixth, I'm completely alone at a table of friends. I feel nothing for them. I feel nothing, nothing. These conversations are a really good opportunity. They're a time for me to be very upfront about my lack of experience with electronic music. It's so different. There's so what the faint is doing and what this is is so different. Yeah, I mean, really, just using the word electronic music is like not, not. It's like way over simplistic. And if, and as you listen to, like here, I'm curious what you all think of this. If you listen to Digital Ash and to Digital Earn in 2005, that really did sound like a full press into something different and committed but if you listen to digital ash and digital learn now honestly more indie music sounds like digital ash now than it does i'm wide awake it's morning and even new bright eyes stuff what's up john oh i'm just saying i want 100 percent agree with that what's what's also interesting though is like i'm wide awake comes out and is like folk songs and then like four years after that you get this weird like revival or or whatever happened with like the lumineers and mumford and sons and things like that and he's like a little bit ahead of a thing like that and then there's all this i mean music really just sounds like this now i mean it's really like computers getting more sophisticated and everything but like i mean it it actually if you listen through on digital action digital learn just like pear was saying like there's a bunch of it's it's a playing with a bunch of electronic soundscape type stuff but it's also a lot of these songs are just like live sounding drums and stuff it's actually not even like exceedingly electronic in a lot of ways you know like i mean there's just a huge dynamic range in digital ash and sort of in people's key too and i do listen to a lot of electronic music so i think that's why well i i guess i say i'm kind of well-rounded i love it all yeah but um yeah, the dynamic range, it's not all just the electronics, it's just the way that they bring out horns, electric guitar, keyboards, and maybe throw a little effect on it, but it's not truly electronic, it's just using more of the effects that they have. And each morning she wakes with a dream to describe something lovely that blooms in her beautiful mind. I say, I'll treat you one also if 
you saw him live on this tour, I think he made much more of that, like his noise and stuff. Just like this, like all oh, these machines making music that we can't control, and like and he opened with um, yeah, time code, and then oh my got it, and that sort of just and especially time code is just like they're showing Amsterdam. It's on YouTube. I'm posting a link in the chat. So that's uh, really cool. But just like how yeah, like you know, the machines not always obeying us when making sounds. I think that was pretty like. And all that, yeah, like computers and like signs and symbols and logos and this like weird new universe we're in, which wasn't weird at 2005. It was weird at 85, but not in 2005, but it's still cool that he plays with that. Like, what a, what a weird modern world we live in with computers, with numbers that produce music. It's fun for me to kind of poke around and see who would be a cool person to talk to or a guest or whatever. And I saw that, like, I I think this is also coming a little bit ignorantly, but it's like nine months before this that the Postal Service record comes out with like Death Cat for Cutie Guy. I mean, I mean, it's really that that I think you have to say is like cut from the same world as this. These these two things kind of happen in in the same vicinity, even if they're in different styles and everything too. That just is. And Jimmy Tamborello, who's the 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 other guy, the guy on the other end from uh, Ben Gibbard on on making that, he's credited as like a producer. Like he did on Take It Easy, Love Nothing, and I reached out to him about possibly being a guest, and it was funny as hell because he's like, first off, I have a really horrible memory and I don't remember things, and second off, I listened back to Take It Easy, Love Nothing to try and see what I contributed to it, and I have no idea what I did on that song, which is <laughs> really funny to me. So he's like. You, he basically said, thanks for asking. You don't want me. You don't want to talk to me about this. But uh, Take It Easy, Love Nothing, I absolutely love. First with your hands, then with your mouth. A downpour of sweat, damn cotton clouds. I was a fool. You were my friend. We made it happen. You took off your clothes, left on the light. You stood there so brave. I like a hook, you know, I'm not afraid to admit that. And I've, I've been really like looking at Spotify numbers lately for better or worse. It's kind of stupid. There's no reason to, but like, why does, why does down in a rabbit hole have more than a million streams and take it easy, love nothing, have 450,000. What am I, am, am I missing a thing? Am I, I, sometimes I'm just missing like a cult thing. I think that's true about like Neely O'Hara, the deep love for that, like where that comes from. I was excited to talk about that, but like, I don't under, understand that. Could be as simple as like Goldmine Gutted is the most popular song on that, or maybe Easy Lucky Free, but like, and then you get Arc of Time After and Down in a Rabbit Hole. Maybe it's just drafting off of plays of those other ones because they come next or something. Not, no need to read that much into it. I don't know. I like thinking of it as drafting behind those other really great songs. <laughs> uh, any Anyone want to tell me about a, a favorite song or a reason or like a thing that jumps out on this record that you love that, that matters a lot to you? Yeah, what's up, Lizzie? Take it easy, love nothing. I sing it like as an anthem almost to myself. If I feel those feels coming on or easy, lucky, free. Yeah, I mean, I just love that whole album. Don't be a criminal. Police state, you better shop and eat and procreate. You've got vacation days, then you might escape to a condo on the coast. I set my watch to the atomic. 
hear the crowd count down till the bomb gets dropped. I always figured that be time enough. I never let it get me down. But I can't help it now. Looking for faces in the clouds. I got some friends. I those can be anthems. Those can be like you can find a lot to like live by or center yourself with on those songs. And Take It Easy, Love Nothing, as far as like instrumentation and sound on this record, when it gets to its end and does whatever the drums do and whatever the like instrumental thing does in the release at the end of Take It Easy, Love Nothing is like, to me, kind of the ultimate example of like, it's a sound I don't expect coming and only exists because they committed to making this record as what it is, you know, like it's not, I'll just, I'll, I'll cue it in and play it here rather than try and explain it. song on this album is a banger like it's so good i've been listening to it a lot the last few days just like because it's frankly because it's coming up on the podcast but also because i really haven't visited it for a long time um but uh if i had to pick one that is just like what sticks out more to me than anything of course it's gonna be take it easy love nothing because i remember that was the first one i heard but also goldmine gutted holy shit it's just such a great song and i'll come back to it every time and i'll find myself like Oh, I remember when this. I remember the first time hearing this. As a student of all this over the last like couple months, there's something I love about Goldmine Gutted does this, and and basically all the records do it. But it's like track one for for how much track one will do. It's like deliberately dragging kind of thing. Track two has is like there's like an instant instant thing about it, and like it's like the reward. Yeah, yeah. It's like okay, you you did it, and it's like boom, we're in. It was dawn, the little whiskey. And a blinking midnight clock Speakers on the TV stand Just a turntable to watch When the smoke came out our mouths On all those hooded sweatshirt walks We were a stroke of luck We were a gold mine that gutted us I think hit the switch as I said before, maybe not musically the best, but I, I love the start. Like I'm staring out into the vacuum again from the back porch of my mind. Like, whoa, okay, things are about to get very real. I'm staring out into that vacuum again from the back porch of my mind. The only thing that's and then I think is this like one of those emo moments that I really enjoy, where it's like. Uh, I mean, I rarely think of this any, like this anymore, but when it's like, I'm completely alone at the table of friends, I feel nothing for them. I feel nothing for them. Like when you're like, yeah, I don't know, like in the kid feeling a little awkward among people. And like, especially as I said, like I had this during my Cuba trip and I was like, okay, everyone's just here to party where I'm here yeah. to like learn something about politics or, you know, whatever. And that like, I don't relate to these people. Like I'm surrounded by them all the time and we're big groups of people, but that's like, yeah, it's that like, Yes, someone sees me, understands me, like in, in those in those moments. I'm completely alone at a table of friends. I feel nothing for them. I feel nothing, nothing. I've been having this like deep respect for like honesty and songwriting, and and there's this. I, I found so much positivity in Lifted. My experience with Lifted as like a 39 year old this last few weeks. And then 
the the things the immediately previous to that that I had with the conversation with Justin Corwin about these really deep dark kind of fucked up songs is like uh, these songs might not all be totally autobiographical and they might be like exercises in songwriting and and just expression to to some degree but like that's a deep level of honesty to say that about the people that you're sitting around like what do you you have to have you just have to suspend the the need to care about who, the people who think you might be talking about them and stuff. But it's like, I've known that feeling. I've absolutely known that, that feeling all of us in, in however positive or optimistic we can try to be, have that feeling sometimes, you know, especially after, I mean, you think about it's the same people. It's like singing. That sounded great. And everybody's clapping and screaming at the end. I'm lifted. (laughs) And then next you're hearing. Yeah. I feel nothing for you. (laughs) Takes a few drinks, but feel nothing. But he also, maybe he's talking about his brother. It might be somebody else he feels feels nothing for them. It, it could be not Connor, but I kind of, I don't know. We could well, all hypothesize forever about Connor's motivation. So yeah, it's, true. it's totally true, but I love it in the context of the story you just told about listening to the song in Cuba. And regardless of who it's about for him, it's a thing. All all three of us have sat here and talked about it. All four of us have sat here and and, I mean, it's all it's all on how you receive it, you know. I think it's in the Fevers and Mirrors episode. You talk about like stuff you need, like sort of you have to have this amazing talent and also some kind of talent, like ability to not really think what others think of you. I think that because even back then, even back when I was like nineteen, I thought that Connor could be cringe sometimes. Now I think that even more, but still, I come back to it and it still like really gets to me. So like. Uh, but but that like yes you have to dare to to be cringe like and I no. think that line like I'm a I'm a lo- table of friends I feel nothing for them that is that could be very cringy but like it's it's also a, like very like universal truth but then it takes a certain kind of talent to be able to sing those lines I mean a fourteen year old could like write those lines but it it it's so different when they're sang by a twenty five year old uh, and 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 daring to do that because yeah I mean he must know that okay. This is gonna come up as like extremely whiny and like some, but but he he does it and uh, yeah so being able to like not think what other will think about the line like that I think that is also what contributes to that that the great I think it phrases so well with that combo that talent but also in combination with not thinking what other people it's, will yeah really true getting older comes with self editing and and absolutely what's funny you're talking about the trip to Cuba so I studied abroad so. I've I had a burn CD fevers and mirrors, but didn't listen to it for a year and a half because I put on didn't know who Bright Eyes was. Listened to track one, and was like, "The fuck is happening in this?" And just getting went away, like it succeeded in whatever that was. And I think it was like emo music was happening, and I was like fancying myself cooler than that. And like re- the person who gave it to me was, I I think I just whatever. Then I then I downloaded songs from Lifted in a dorm room and 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 loved them enough and had them in this weird like smattering of of downloaded rogue mp3s and then i studied abroad in spain from 2004 2005 and so this i knew and loved bright eyes enough but this record came out and i i didn't hear either of these records until i got home and i'm trying i can't think of why like the internet wasn't as good but i had the internet i was listening to those bright eyes i had i i had them on my computer the the older ones and I didn't hear it until I got home. There's an alternative world where I go to like a Virgin Mega Store in 2005 in Madrid and and get them. Like I, I should have. I, I really can't think of why I didn't do that. Like I, maybe I just was poor. But I and and so then when I came back, 
it was honestly like to be to totally cop to it. Like I heard landlocked blues and Lua and I just was like, this is, this is amazing. This is, that's all I, I obsessed over that record for two years before I probably ever even really, really got into digital ash and digital. Bacteria breeds on a microscope slide. The warm in my heart's the apple of your eye. I don't adore what is impossible. We have built this ship. It's like you're a motivator. Like, I don't work out at the gym, but I play at the gym. But, but, you know, if I'm going to a hard day at work and I've got to get pumped up, Digital Ash is going in. It usually is always in, actually, to be honest. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm actually a- arrived at where I was going. I thought it was going to take me a lot longer because um, traffic was stopped on the interstate. So... I wish I could stay longer, but I've got to get off the call. No I hope worries. you do more than this is a great thing. I think I will. I think I will. I mean, it's funny. This one was by virtue of totally like in the Tim Casher episode and feel free to hang up anytime, Lizzie. But in the Tim okay. Casher episode, it was like, I'm not going to sit there and like quiz Tim Casher about, about songs from letting off the happiness. You know, that's not, no one wants that, especially him. And but but we still talked about some of the songs in the time period. And the, I think the Todd Fink conversation will really complement that record and this type of and just experimentation with different things in music and everything, because like I think that's very much the Faint's early story. But we literally don't talk about the songs. <laughs> it's not. So this is like a very valuable conversation for the episode and for me. And it's cool to meet some of you. not for me to talk about what Connor Oberst can and can't do, but this feels like you, you're not just talking about a, a, a wonderkind emo boy poet anymore. This is a whole different thing happening here, you know? Any thoughts on that? Around this year, so I think you talked a lot about, like, breaking away for, like, the what he's been cast into, like, you know, the emo kid with, like, like the sad kid with a guitar, and yeah. just, like, I think it's, like, I think he... I mean, I shouldn't psychologize him, but but it's still I will. <laughs> but because like Craig wanted to do something else, and this is so completely different, like doing something like that does not fit that you know emo kid or like folk singer thing, and that he also had like a completely different vision to do something completely. I think that's really cool. Yeah. But I, I I yeah I know nothing of like the whose vision was what and who did what. for for i'm wide awake it's it's i'm wide awake songs in digital ash style and digital ash songs in i'm wide awake style oh that's amazing i had no idea that's that's, super cool that'll be interesting and i mean maybe that'll that improves the i'm wide awake more this morning songs 
I want to hear I want to hear Lua with like a with like a a trance beat on it or something like that. That'd be totally rad. <laughs> yeah. I think it's not going to be on there. Yeah, they go wild. wrap it up pretty soon here but any other feel free to share anything else related to digital ash i don't it doesn't have to just be a conversation with me i'm interested to hear what any of you have to say we already talked about goldmine gathered but i think the intro is just so cool it's sort of that what do you call it like in media rest you get right into the action don't yeah. really whisk me in a blinking midnight clock uh i think that's just so like it sets the stage and especially like if you as i because i never like listened to this with the song titles i just like time code to me was like the long intro to goldmine gathered it really does. It really does announce what what you're about to get. I mean, it does that great on all the records? I really think and it's even true. Yeah, it's it's true on both these that come out this day. And um, great talking to you all. Yeah, this was awesome. Honestly, I thought the cool thing to do would be to be put to put out Digital Ash episode and I'm Wide Awake episode on the same day. Um, maybe I'll still do that, but. I think that that I'm going on a vacation. I'm actually going back to a wedding in Spain, in Madrid, where I where I lived when these records came out, which there's maybe some poetry in that for me. But cool. I'm going to edit this on the way there. But I have an interview about I'm Wide Awake It's Morning scheduled for when I get back, like in early September. And so if I do... If I do those on the same day, that means the episode is not going to be for... So then I think it would just solve the question that I posed and that you know, digital ash comes first. I think you're right. So, I think, I think digital ash comes first. <laughs> We've done this. I have the materials and I got a nine hour flight in front of me. It sounds like a, a perfect editing situation. Great talking to you all. Enjoy the rest yeah. of your Sunday. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Thanks,